Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.36 a.m. Central Standard Time. It is the 10th of December, 2021. This is episode 515 of Bitcoin. And I remind you, if you want to uh, help me out here, you can always use Podcasting 2.0 technology to stream me Satoshis to my lightning node that is one or two feet away from me. And I will get those Satoshis directly while I stream you these dulcet tones. Also, I have lightning tips open on my um, on my Twitter account, B-E-N-N-D-7-7. That's B-E-N-N-D-7-7. I also have a Patreon page that you can use uh, Dirty Fiat on if you so wish. And that is the Bitcoin or Bitcoin and podcast over there on Patreon. Um, there's a couple of different ways that you can uh, help support the show. And I would, I would appreciate it. And I do appreciate the support that I have already received from many, many fine folks. <clears throat> but beyond all of them, my absolute favorite is Podcasting 2.0 because that, that thing is going to eat the world. I was listening to Adam Curry uh, on a Podcasting 2.0 podcast, which is actually the name of that particular podcast. And uh, him and, and uh, Dvor- Dvorak, I think is his name. That's the, I think, one of the main uh, guys that he's working with that uh, actually knows how to code and do back-end stuff. Some of the stuff that they were talking about was amazing, i.e., they were talking about Taylor Swift. And if you didn't know, uh, Taylor Swift, well, first, if you didn't know who Taylor Swift is, she's like megastar or, you know, or something like that. I don't particularly listen to her music, but... Lots of people do. And she, when she signed her first record contract, what happened was that she signed basically a standard deal. Because if you don't sign the standard deal, you're not getting the record contract. So if you want to be a rock star, you're signing the record contract, okay? And that basically stipulates that the uh, uh, record company or the, uh, uh, oh, the production, uh, what am I trying to say here? The publisher... <laughs> owns the rights to the music. <clears throat> well, then all of a sudden those rights got sold to some dude. And she was basically getting like a pittance. <laughs> I mean, she was getting rich anyway, but she was not getting anywhere close to the amount that, you know, you think that you would get as an artist. And this has been true forever. But <clears throat> in her case, when those rights got sold, um, she, I guess she started with a, nego- a negotiation with the guy to try to get some of those rights back, and he said no. And then he sold those rights to a third party uh, for like $300 million or something like that. Anyway, this entire debacle caused her to re-record her first three albums so that she could have the music rights back. Prince has done stuff like this. There's been a lot of artists <clears throat> that have done that. Actually, Prince just didn't record for a long time until they let him out of his uh, uh record contract because he wasn't producing anything. He refused to because the deal was so bad. And there's been other, uh, I think it was uh, John Fogarty had to re-record some stuff to get uh, music rights back. And when you, ha- when you do that, it clearly is sending a signal that something is, is, is very wrong. These pe- the people in the music I- industry have been gangsters for decades, but it's really bad now. Well, in response... The uh, publishing house of Taylor Swift has is going to basically write a new contract for all the new people coming on board. You cannot re-record your music to gain your music rights uh, for twice as long, twice as many years. There's a clause that says you got to wait this many years before you can re-record to you know basically for it's sort of like a non-compete clause in a really sick and twisted way well now they've just doubled that time in response to taylor swift's actions 
Well, the reason that I'm telling you that story is that <clears throat> what Adam and, and Dvorak was talking about was, you know, how to use a clip of music from somebody on a podcast or, or play a whole song on a podcast with this kind of environment going on. <clears throat> and it, they started talking about the value block and being able to split the payments that a, a podcaster would receive. We already know that you can split that up between two or three different people. Like, you know, the guy that produces it gets a cut, the, you know, like Adam Curry gets a cut, John Dvorak gets a cut. But then they start talking about, well, if we include a song, then we can just reevaluate the value block and stream, have this uh, Satoshis that stream to us, a percentage of that go to the artist and we just make the deal with the artist. And when you start thinking along these lines, it just completely blows apart any barrier that there is, but the battle, there's a battle that remains. As an artist, you can never, ever, ever, period infinity, give up your rights to your intellectual property, your production, your music, your words. You just can't do it. A new model is coming and it's podcasting 2.0. <clears throat> this also means that artists will be able to, you know, stream their music to people on podcasting 2.0, but it won't be a podcast. They were talking about that as well. So just be aware. My very favorite thing, the very, my own, what excites me the most is see, seeing sats stream into my lightning node using Thunderhub or ride the lightning. I can, I can monitor that. And I see like, you know, two, three Satoshis coming in every minute. And that is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. So if you do want to support the show, podcasting 2.0 is my preferred go-to. Now <clears throat> to the morning news, an essay from El Salvador, a glass half full, or a block half empty. Mike Peterson has this one from Bitcoin Magazine. One of my favorite things to do in the midst of this craziness unleashed by the passing of Le Bitcoin has been to get an off-record moment with journalists or Bitcoiners who are visiting El Salvador and ask them their honest impressions of the state of Bitcoin here. Rarely do they need much time to reflect. <clears throat> their responses often fall into two camps. It is mind-blowing to see what has happened here, and I still can't believe it has come so far so fast. Or, to be honest, it has been very disappointing. I was expecting things to be so much further along. While it's normal for two travelers to have very different experiences, possibly due to where they stay or who they meet, I've also found that two people who had the exact same experience could often leave with completely different takeaways. The difference in opinion is usually not the experiences, but how the experiences matched their expectations. <clears throat> I find that long-time Bitcoiners are the most likely to be positively surprised, while those relatively new to Bitcoin are most likely to be disappointed. It is hard to truly appreciate how far and how fast El Salvador has come without the trials and tribulations of those trying to use Bitcoin over the past decade. Some often heard refrains I hear, the only difference being that one person recounts them excitedly while the other with lament. I hear I could easily use Bitcoin in McDonald's, Starbucks, and Pizza Hut, but it's a lot harder in the smaller stores. Or they accepted Bitcoin, but they didn't know how to create a QR code that worked with a non-Chivo wallet. I also hear, I asked my taxi driver if I could pay a Bitcoin. He said he was thinking about starting to accept it, but for now, no. Or I could usually find a couple of places to spend Bitcoin, but a lot of the places weren't accepting it. Or people were accepting it for payment, but they didn't really understand how it works. The range in responses is staggering, but not unexpected for a country early in the transition. <clears throat> my take on how El Salvador's embrace of Bitcoin is going. It depends if you see the number of Bitcoin transactions that have increased 1,000 times in a month, or if you see that the dollar is still being used for 99% of transactions. Do you smile at the sight of multiple say acceptamos BTC or complain that they are still necessary? Do you see a government-controlled custodial wallet as a gateway to understanding freedom money or freedom money being corrupted? I believe that 10 years from now, we will all say its success was inevitable, but until we reach that point, the relative beauty of hyper-Bitcoinization in El Salvador will remain in the eye of the beholder. Okay, 
Thank you, Mike. I'm, I'm at, Mike Peterson, by the way, is the guy behind the Bitcoin Beach project, which essentially was, you know, the, the seed from which all of this grew. So, you know, honestly, I don't know because I haven't been to El Salvador. But I do want to say this to the people that are freaking out about how Bitcoin was forced upon its citizenry. How? I don't see anybody saying that, or I, I don't see any reporting that somebody was thrown in jail because they didn't accept Bitcoin. Here we have an example of, uh, you know, people asking, do you accept Bitcoin? Because there's the possibility that they don't. <clears throat> and then there's the taxi driver who said, well, I'm thinking about it, but no, I'm not going to do it for now. I'll just, I'll just take dollars. Okay, well, if if this was forced on the citizenry, then why isn't that taxi driver in jail for not accepting Bitcoin? I think that we've overblown in, a, in very large ways that one clause in the Bitcoin law that stated that you have to take it. Clearly that's not occurring. And I actually think that that's a good thing. I think you should not pressure people to do this. If it's really going to be free to money, then you should be free to use it or not. Let's move on. <clears throat> what do we have next here? Nonprofit SAT Center launches to educate U.S. regulators on Bitcoin. Oh boy, let's see how this one goes. Uh, Bitcoin Magazine's Namcios writing, leading Bitcoin companies have launched SATS Center, a nonprofit business league dedicated to fostering an innovative environment for Bitcoin. The organization said in a statement Thursday, the nonprofit will provide education to the public, elected officials, and regulators seeking to learn more about Bitcoin and how it can empower economic growth and financial inclusion. Quote, SATS Center will focus primarily on the state and local level, filling in knowledge gaps about Bitcoin and the opportunities it can bring to communities. The organization will also create an environment for the innovative open source industry to connect with regulators and community leaders, the company said in a statement. <clears throat> While many U.S. politicians and regulators are aware of Bitcoin, most still lack a comprehensive understanding of the network. Few people in power in the country realize the true value proposition of the peer-to-peer -peer monetary system and how it can improve the lives <clears throat> of everyday citizens. This dynamic became clear on Wednesday as lawmakers of the House Financial Services Committee hosted a hearing to better understand the nuances of Bitcoin technology. Most of those, uh, most of those present bundled the sound monetary network and digital assets into the same basket, discussing how Congress could help regulators such as the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission embed them into current rules, dismissing critical differences between the two technologies. SATS Center's mission intersects with that reality. The nonprofit said it envisions a future where Bitcoin is leveraged to enable commerce, access to financial services, and individual economic sovereignty. To achieve that, SATS Center said it would build a grassroots community of educators, supporters, and advocates working together to inform people and build that future. Founding members of the nonprofit organization include Bitcoin Magazine, BitBlockBoom, BitRefill, Casa, Compass Mining, Core Scientific, Marathon, Riot Blockchain, River Financial, Swan Bitcoin, and Upstream Data, among others. Okay, thank God. These are some pretty good, solid Bitcoin companies. I know people are having problems with Compass Mining. I, I don't have, I, I don't know anything about, you know, I know what's going on and what's being bitched about, but I, I don't have... I, I'm not using them. I, I'm not mining or anything like that, so I have no idea. But the li this list, Bitcoin Magazine, Bitblock Boom, BitRefill, Casa, Marathon, Riot, River, Swan, Upstreet, these are all solid Bitcoin companies. So I have hope that Sats Center will not end up being some kind of weird Satoshi's roundtable where white papers are written to change consensus rules of Bitcoin. In this particular case, I highly doubt it. Now, if, for whatever reason, <clears throat> you immediately started hating on that idea, check this shit out. You ain't the only one hating on something. Brian Quarmby has this one from Cointelegraph. Gamer hate. <clears throat> Ubisoft's new NFT project video gets 96% dislike ratio. <laughs> 
French gaming giant Ubisoft Entertainment SA's new non-fungible token project, Quartz, is facing strong pushback from the gaming community. Ubisoft unveiled the beta launch of Quartz via a brief YouTube video on Wednesday that has 214,000 views at the time of writing. The project aims to combine NFTs and blockchain technology with existing AAA game titles and announced Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Breakpoint as its first game to officially integrate NFTs. <clears throat> the video introduces Quartz as a platform that enables gamers to collect the first payable and energy efficient Ubisoft NFTs that are dubbed as digits. YouTube recently changed its policy to hide the number of dislikes a video on its platform gets. However, the number can still be accessed by Google Chrome extensions. Upon using an extension, the video currently shows up 1,400 likes and 37,000 dislikes, which equates to a dislike ratio of roughly 96%. One of the top comments on the video from user Operator Drewski currently has 2,600 likes with zero dislikes and blasts Ubisoft's NFT project as a quick cash grab as opposed to improving the overall gaming experience. Quote, <clears throat> to me, this is a blatant signal that you are just milking the Ghost Recon franchise for literally every cent while putting in minimal effort into the actual game itself. Not playing a GR game in the future if there's this level of degeneracy in the team, end quote. Quote, you took a solid franchise and absolutely made it a laughingstock, they added. This opinion appears to be shared by a significant number of the community, with users on Twitter also lashing out at the firm in response to its latest announcement <clears throat> as they threatened to uninstall the firm's game and boycott Ubisoft completely. And here's a, here's a response uh, tweet from a Ubisoft tweet. Because of my personal views of NFTs and not because of the environment entirely, I will now proceed to uninstall anything related to you right now and cease further purchase of your games. That is all. For people that dislike current Ubi's marketing, just stop buying. Wow. And that thing has 472 likes so far and 63 replies. A Wednesday post over on the R Gaming subreddit page on Reddit shows a concerted effort to boycott the new NFT project. The post titled, Do Not Support Quartz, the new NFT Ubisoft marketplace from user Wolverine Kazuri, currently has 2,500 comments and an upvote ratio of 93% at more than 13,400 upvotes. The Redditor highlights similar issues to the top commenter on YouTube, noting, quote, we have to stand against this practice. This is just another way to nickel and dime players with cosmetics rather than focus on making quality products with depth. We have to let companies know this is anti-consumer, end quote. <clears throat> quote, I'm not entirely against the concept of using NFT style systems for game digital games. For example, actually owning your digital copy rather than just a license so you can sell it to another user's account. That's actually the future of digital gaming. What I'm against is how Ubisoft are doing it with in-game items, they added. This is not the first time a major firm has been flamed for looking at or launching into the world of NFTs. Cointelegraph reported last month that community messaging app Discord was forced to walk back its Ethereum-based NFT integration plans after the gamer community bombarded CEO Jason Citron. Citron initially teased his firm's plans via a screenshot of a beta feature showing Ethereum NFT wallet support. However, he was promptly hounded with thousands of comments calling on him to abandon the plans, along with users threatening to cancel their paid Nitro subscriptions. Unlike the case of Ubisoft, where the community appears to be peeved by what they assert as a cash grab, the crypto skeptics on Discord believe that NFTs are a Ponzi scheme and damage the environment due to the energy required to mine cryptocurrencies. Oh God, Cointelegraph has reached out to Ubisoft for comment and will update the story if they respond. So, okay, you know, honestly, this is actually kind of good news when you think about it. There are, uh, there's a whole sector of people that have a strong enough voice that they are making Ubisoft think twice about their plans. And they certainly made Discord think twice about their plans and, and they scrapped the whole damn deal. I think that this is good. I think that we are not alone. When we look at, at generally speaking, when we look at NFTs as the shit show that it is, 
we are not alone. It maybe it looks every once in a while like the NFT crew on you know on crypto Twitter is gaining steam, but a whole shit ton of people that play games are not having any of it. And I think you can look at that as very good news for, you know, at least trying to quell the scam show that is NFTs right now. I don't think that they will always be scams. I don't. The way that it's, the, the way the shit's being rolled out right now, it's all a scam. I won't touch them. I, I recommend not to have anything to do with this crap. If you can, just stay the fuck away from it until people figure out exactly how to do this in a way that actually makes sense instead of hooking it to, oh, it's an NFT. Clearly it's going to gain in value and you can sell it on the open marketplace and make money. That's uh, not, gamers are, are, are becoming very vocal that that's not what they want. Okay, <clears throat> the battle is on. We have now attracted the ire of the Southern Poverty Law Center, people. This one is Scott Cipollina, a known Bitcoin hater, but he's the one that's covering this for Decrypt. So let's just go ahead and read this one. White supremacists turn to Bitcoin for financial lifeline. Okay, yes, we've heard this before, but this is the first time that I remember the Southern Poverty Law Center actually doing the report. So they have a tendency to be heard. We need to know what it is that they're saying. Bitcoin has played a central role in financing the white supremacy movement, according to a new hate watch analysis published by the Southern Poverty Law Center. <clears throat> Quote, hate watch identified and compiled over 600 cryptocurrency addresses associated with white supremacists and other prominent far-right extremists for this essay and then probed their transaction histories through blockchain analysis software what we found was striking the splc said according to splc greg johnson editor-in-chief of white supremacist publishing house countercurrents andrew anglin of neo-nazi publication the daily stormer don black of racist platform Stormfront and many others were all early investors in Bitcoin and have since reaped the financial rewards ever since. Quote, the estimated tens of millions of dollars worth of value extreme far-right figures generated represents a sum that would almost certainly be unavailable to them without cryptocurrency, and it gave them a chance to live comfortable lives while promoting hate and authoritarianism, the SLPC said. The, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, SPLC. The SPLC used crypto exchange Gemini's 2021 State of the U.S. crypto report to show that less than 25% of Americans own cryptocurrencies. However, those numbers increased dramatically among far-right extremists. Quote, Hate Watch struggled to find any prominent player in the global far right who hasn't yet embraced cryptocurrency to at least some degree. White supremacists are not just investing in Bitcoin or receiving donations in Bitcoin for that matter, but they're spending it too. Oh, ach, the horror. Stefan Molyneux, a prominent of, <clears throat> a proponent of scientific racism and eugenics, has both received and spent the most Bitcoin among his white supremacist counterparts. Molyneux has received over $1.5 million worth of Bitcoin and spent over $3 million. Quote, <clears throat> Molyneux's experience with Bitcoin stands out alongside the other extremists. Hate Watch studied, the SLP or SPLC added. Not only did he invest long-term in Bitcoin, holding the asset through periods of volatility rather than cashing out, but his donors bestowed him with 1,250 Bitcoin tokens, far more than anyone else Hate Watch studied. This hate watch analysis is the latest in a long line of examples showing how important crypto has become to the far right. God, Scott, you're just, oh, between, between this, this woke bullshit and his hatred of Bitcoin's mining processes due to energy usage, I'm surprised this guy writes anything at all about Bitcoin anymore, honestly, but we'll, we'll continue. In September, an investigation by the Associated Press showed that far-right groups and individuals had raised millions worth of cryptocurrencies. Anglin was a standout, having received $5 million worth of Bitcoin since January 2017. Anglin reportedly turned to Bitcoin after having been previously banned by PayPal and other credit institutions. He even published a guide called Retard's Guide to Using Bitcoin after the Charlottesville riots in August of 2017. 
In September, Douglas McKay, a far-right conspiracist who threatened voters, received $60,000 worth of Bitcoin to fund his legal troubles. And most recently, popular QAnon figure and Congress hopeful Ron Watkins took to Telegram to ask for Bitcoin donations to aid his campaign after failing to raise funds in the traditional way. However, Bitcoin is not the only culprit here. Once law enforcement started circling, Anglin turned to Monero. Quote, every Bitcoin transfer is visible publicly. Generally, your name is not attached to the address in a direct way, but spies from the various woke anti-freedom organizations have unlimited resources to try and link these transactions to real names, Anglin said at the time. Right-wing pundits like Candace Owens and Ryan Fournier have also been pushing right-wing cryptocurrencies dubbed Let's Go Brandon and Fuck Joe Biden. As far back as the Capitol Hill riots this January, riots, uh, rioters, including white supremacist Nick Fuentes, received $500,000 worth of Bitcoin by a now-deceased donor who said he cared about what happens after his death and who decided to leave his modest wealth to certain causes and people. All right, that's the end of the article. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to have to read that to you, but this is what we're going to be up against because now that the SPLC is involved, the hate gets real. Okay, right? You know, we've just kind of been, I don't know, people have been kind of like throwing a couple of pebbles at us a couple of times, but the SPLC, I'm not scared of them, but it's like this is not something that you just sweep under the rug and and not watch and not try to figure out, you know, ways to combat. But I honestly believe that this is going to be the, the hill that the SPLC finally dies upon. I think they've picked a hill, and I think they're going to die on this hill. I think we are going to be victorious. It's going to take a while, but I, I think that this is the end of the SPLC. But we're going to have to see if I'm right or not. Now, what else we got here? Here is why Bitcoin will kill index funds. This should be fun from Andrew Flattery out of Bitcoin Magazine. <clears throat> what does it mean? to demonetize an asset. It means to take away its status as money. Not good for owners of these assets. So how can you demonetize index funds if after all they are funds? The answer is that index funds are used as money in the broad sense. The larger ones, such as those that track the standard and poor's 500 index are a de facto store of value for retirement savers. Therefore, there is a monetary premium placed on these products that go beyond pure investment for the holders of them. This is one reason why Sailor calls index funds weak assets whose value <coughs> will be transferred to Bitcoin. <coughs> there are advantages to index funds, but I think their dominance is unsustainable over the long run. Bitcoin is here as the ideal alternative. In over a decade as a financial advisor, clients have looked to me to point them in the right direction on how to allocate their savings and investments. When I was first starting out, I remember hearing an old Wall Street adage, nobody gets fired for buying IBM. Today, it could very well be nobody gets fired for recommending an S&P 500 index fund. Index funds and index-based ETFs have become the preferred solution for wealth managers and retirement investors today. It's a sacred cow. An index fund, according to Investopedia, is, quote, a type of mutual fund or exchange-traded fund with a portfolio constructed to match or track the components of a financial market index such as the Standard & Poor's 500 index, end quote. There are good reasons why the growth of these products have exploded. Lowering expenses, winning by not losing is important. Most importantly, John Bogle, uh, founder of the Vanguard Group of Investment Companies, Brilliance, was about preaching the discipline to buy and hold, to hodl, if you will. The index fund gave us a simple way to participate in the appreciation of stock indices without having to pay high expenses. They were a necessary innovation in an era where unsophisticated savers have been forced to participate in investments they know nothing about because of fiat inflation. That is a tremendously important sentence in this article, by the way, boys and girls. The crux of the matter is that index funds are what I call nihilistic investing because it's investing where nothing matters. To understand why, let's take a look at the example of checkout lines in a grocery store. You may notice that it is usually the case that every checkout line at the grocery store is about the same length. Why is this? 
The reason is because each shopper surveys the lines and then stands in the one that appears the shortest. The collective result of these decisions are orderly lines that are more or less equal. It is order that is created by no one single person. But imagine instead, if everyone said to themselves, the markets are efficient, the lines are always equal, so I will just naively stand in the first one. Now the orderliness ceases to exist. The lines were more or less equal because everywhere everyone was making an active decision, they were not nihilistic. Now we start to understand the fundamental problem with index funds. If everyone indexed, it is no longer a market at all. John Bogle, the inventor of the index fund, even said as much towards the end of his life. Quote, if everybody indexed, the only word you could use is chaos, catastrophe, the markets would fail. He said that in May of 2017. Index fund apologists might respond that there will always be greedy investors trying to find an edge in the market. These investors will always provide much needed price discovery, they might say. This may be true to an extent, but there is still a distortion to prices when a large portion of the market is, quote, dumb money. This is exactly what we are seeing today. Because index investing, once viewed as the way to circumvent Wall Street, is now the establishment. Let's take a look at the monolith of BlackRock, Vanguard Group, Fidelity Investments, Capital Group, and State Street, the five largest providers of index funds and ETFs. These firms collectively manage over $27 trillion in global assets, which is more than 60% of all of the assets held in U.S. stock funds. BlackRock, in particular, may have even more influence than even the U.S. Federal Reserve. It is cronyism in all of its glory. A telling report by the American Civil Liberties Project found that, one, BlackRock holds a 5% or greater stake in more than 97.5% of S&P 500 companies. Two, they have a former Fed vice chairman on the payroll. Three, in June of 2021, BlackRock's two largest bond ETFs grew to their largest size ever following the Fed's announcement that it would purchase corporate bond ETFs. Four, then the Fed hired BlackRock to manage these corporate bond buying programs that, you guessed it, would purchase BlackRock's own ETFs. And finally, CEO Larry Fink is a very key advisor to President Joe Biden. <clears throat> Let's go, Brandon. BlackRock's influence is so large that Bloomberg has called them the fourth branch of the government. And who is the largest shareholder of BlackRock, Inc.? Well, that would be none other than Vanguard themselves. So, we can speculate that the growth of indexing has not just been the result of market choice, but through at least partial influence of government power. This trend has only been amplified by the Department of Labor, Labor's 2016 fiduciary rule, where my own financial advisor community dramatically shifted from favoring actively managed investments towards passive index funds and ETFs. This two-headed monster of government regulation and a powerful corporate lobby nudges more and more investors towards passive indexing. The influence of these crony firms could diminish when investors finally wake up to a better alternative, however. The good news is that Bitcoin, the money that you must choose if you want to use it, is a superior solution that comes with no coercion. Since Bitcoin is money, it exists for the very purpose of savings. As Saifedean Amis has put it, quote, under a hard money, all demand for savings would just go to holding cash, end quote. In other words, there would be no need to save using investment products when there is money that holds its value and even appreciates while you hold it. Sure, stock index funds will most likely experience lower volatility than Bitcoin in the future, but their upside return potential is also much, much lower. By Vanguard's own admission, projected returns over the next 10 years are only for around 2-4% to annualized in United States stocks. On the other hand, Bitcoin is an asset class that is still in its infancy, yet it has delivered an annual return of 891% from 2011 to 2020. As pure monetary premium, it exists for the very reason that most people own index funds anyway. That is, to store their hard-earned savings, to transfer it to their future selves, and leave something of value to their generations. <clears throat> for me, it took a bit of creative imagination to make the switch to Bitcoin. It required me to speculate a dirty word to financial advisors on what the future might look like 
as others have done here, here, and even here, and those are all links. There are no back tests available for this sort of endeavor. Likewise, this may be a hang up at first for boggleheads, but once they make the switch, I think the inertia will pull that community of believers into Bitcoin as well. After all, there is no better marketing than number go up. Investing in its essence will always exist, but saving in Bitcoin will replace nihilistic index investing. Thank you to Trent Dudenhofer and Don Stewart for reviewing and providing feedback to this article. Okay. <laughs> I think he said it just well enough. I don't need to say anything else about it, but I do agree. Let's run the numbers. CNBC Futures and Commodities. Uh, we've got West Texas Intermediate up 0.4%. Uh, Brent North Sea is up a quarter of a percent. Natural gas is up almost a full point. Gasoline is the only flammable liquid not on fire. It is down 0.04% to $2.12 a gallon. Gold is the only shiny metal rock doing anything today. It is up a quarter of a point to $1,780. Bucks. Uh, agricultural futures are mixed. Uh, rough rice, the highest mover at 1.23% to the upside, and the biggest loser is coffee at two and a quarter to the downside. Uh, the Dow is gonna be up 0.33%, uh, S&P futures up a half, NASDAQ futures up over a half, and the S&P mini up 0.12%. Real money has a price of $49,505. Apparently we got a bump since I was sleeping. 272,000 transactions translates into 12,000 transactions on average per hour with 667,000 BTC being sent in that 24 hour period. That's 27,800 BTC being sent every hour on the hour with two and a half BTC is the average transaction value and the median transaction value 0.015 BTC or 762 bucks. Block times are still low, nine minutes, zero seconds. 0 0.06 BTC taken in fees in the last, or on a per block basis, and 10.8 BTC taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period. In that same 24 hours, we've lost one and a half percent of hash rate, bringing us all the way down to 179.9 exahashes per second. That's pretty high, that's a lot of security. A Dogecoin is your shitcoin indicator standing at around 16.9 United States pennies. I'm glad I got rid of mine when it was at 55 cents. 8,060 transactions are waiting on four blocks to clear. We are, wow, that sucks. 909 trillion or $909 billion in market capitalization is now under 8% of gold's market cap. We can only buy 27 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,897,047.75 and 3,299.8 of those are chilling out in the Lightning Network at a capacity value of $158.9 million, run over 18,554 nodes, uh, sporting 81,732 payment channels. And I think we've just hit an all-time high on Tor capacity. 75.4% of the Lightning Network is now run over Tor. That's handling 2,489.5 Bitcoin and 11,420 nodes are doing that. 420, <laughs> that's gonna do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use, Chainalysis, to add support for Lightning Network Bitcoin payments. Yeah, good luck with that. Decrypts, uh, Stacy Elliott is writing it. Let's figure out what these idiots think they can do. Blockchain data platform chain analysis will add support for the Lightning Network, a layer two protocol on the Bitcoin blockchain in February, 2022. The integration will make the chain analysis know your transaction compliance software available to companies that process Bitcoin payments through Lightning nodes. It also means that virtual asset service providers like exchanges will be able to handle Bitcoin transactions in a way that's compliant with global standards. Quote, there will be no change in the user experience of the Lightning Network, said a chain analysis spokesperson. Oh, I'm just gonna, I just got to pause at the hubris. You don't have anything to do with how the Lightning Network operates to even 
utter a sentence that even suggests that you could. I'm, we're we're talking. These are fucking narcissists, is what they are, and we are. They are. They border us on all sides. It's like I I I don't understand this. I don't understand why people refuse to be free and why people see that trading other people's freedom for money is going to somehow or another make their lives better. I don't get it. But every single person at chain analysis needs to be ashamed of themselves, ashamed that they call themselves human and ashamed that they are tying up the carbon in their bodies rather than having it in charcoal format that I can put on my barbecue grill. Let's continue. The vast terminology which Chain Analysis used in its press release comes directly from Financial Action Task Force guidance that was updated at the end of October. The international body maintains best practices for anti-money laundering. Completely unelected, by the way. Just saying, there's... Why do we even listen to these people? I have no idea, but apparently we do, and so do these idiots. Although it doesn't have the power to issue fines, it does maintain a gray list for countries that it feels warrant increasing monitoring and a blacklist for ones that have been uncooperative. Landing on one of those lists tends to lead to economic sanctions from the other participating fad of countries like the U.S., and it can take years to get off the list. The most recent FATF exchanges altered the organization's definition of a VASP to, quote, exclude ancillary participants that do not provide or actively facilitate any of these covered activities, such as entities which provide Internet or cloud services, end quote. That would leave out developers who contribute to open source projects and miners. The other change, which updates the travel rule, pertains more to the kind of information that firms will be able to collect with the chain analysis compliance software. The travel rule requires financial institutions to share data with other firms when sending money. The FATF specified that data for crypto transactions of $3,000 or more between VASPs, but not private parties, will all fall under the umbrella of the travel rule. Quote, the Lightning Network solves many of the challenges that prevent Bitcoin protocol from being used for micropayments and other transaction types that bolster financial inclusion, said Pratima Aurora, Chain Analysis Chief Product Officer, quote, by enabling customers to compliantly support Lightning transactions, we hope to grow the network's popularity and help and help its scale. Adoption of the Lightning Network, which launched in 2018, has risen at a faster pace in 2021 than any other year. The number of nodes on the network grew by 68% last year, according to Bitcoin Visuals. But this year, helped by the fact that it was part of the Salvadoran government's rollout of Bitcoin as legal tender, as well as Twitter's integration of Bitcoin for its tipping feature, the number of active nodes has grown by 128% since January. The chain analysis spokesperson said the compliance capabilities of its Know Your Transaction do not cover new tax reporting provisions in the $1.2 trillion infrastructure package signed by fuck you, Biden, last month. The bill would require companies to treat crypto payments of over $10,000 as cash payments, which makes them responsible for collecting and sending tax information to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network within 15 days. The other provision, which categorizes any person or firm involved in a crypto transaction as a broker, would require the collection and filing of tax information to the IRS. Opponents of the provision have labeled the definition overly broad, saying it would be technically impossible for individual developers or crypto miners to satisfy the tax reporting requirements. This is the same provision that's drawn criticism from Senators Cynthia Lummis, Ron Wyden, and Senator Ted Cruz. So, yeah, they, they're making it sound like, oh, this is going to help. No, it's, it's not designed to help. It certainly can't. Well, okay, it may be able to hinder, but not the network itself, just your ability to have clear conscience in using the network. And I don't mean you feel bad because, you know, you, you didn't comply. What I mean is that it may make you think twice. Don't. At one point or another, we're going to have to stand up as individuals and fight this shit. We can't just continuously call our senators who do nothing. We cannot continuously write letters to our representatives, which then do nothing. The only thing that, that those phone calls or letters have ever gotten me is a form letter back saying that they read it or that they listened to my concern. Took no steps in doing anything fucking about it. So nothing, it was just a waste of my time. And it's been a waste of my time for the last 10 years that I've tried it. And I just, 
I just refuse to even integrate myself with these people any longer. We have to do something. We have to stand up. We have to say no. As individuals, we have the power to say no. You know, if, if you're going to do it simply because you just want to screw the government, then I suppose that's not the best pattern. But if you're like saying, dude, I own a business. I have a product. I'd like to sell that product. No, I don't want you to use your shitty ass money. I want to use Bitcoin and I want to use the Lightning Network. And I want to sell, I, I want to start selling, like start out small and sell coffee plants. I'm not going to report you to the IRS if you buy $3,000 worth of plants from me all at once. Or as your transactions pile up over the year and you're over $3,000, I'm also not going to take your social security number. I'm not going to do it. I don't have the ability to be able to store that information competently. And I'm not going to spend my money on making sure that I have the training and I have the equipment available to do that. It is an onus that's being put on me that is, it's beyond not fair. It destroys people's ability to engage in commerce. We have to just say no at a personal level. So Biden or Brandon or however you want to be addressed these days, old creepy sleepy Joe, I'm not going to comply. I'm going to run my Bitcoin full node, which has a active lightning node on it with active payment channels. I'm going to take Satoshis from people who are listening to this podcast, and I am never, ever going to give you one single sheet of paper that tells you who they were, where they are, or any other information about them. So with that, you can fuck straight off, sleepy Creepy Joe. Now, Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, we welcome Bitcoin. Namcios has it for Bitcoin Magazine. Florida governor Ron DeSantis has reportedly proposed programs to make his state friendlier to Bitcoin innovation. The governor's move gives Miami Mayor Francis Suarez state-level support, adding to the previous aid received at the county level. Quote, our view as the state government is this is something that we want to welcome and we want to make sure that the state government is crypto-friendly, DeSantis said. According to a Bloomberg report, DeSantis proposed a program to enable businesses in Florida to pay state fees in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, among other cryptocurrency-related product or proposals included in the state's budget for next year. The move is an attempt to attract further Bitcoin investment to Florida. This year, the state has seen an influx of related entrepreneurs and businesses as new developments are and welcoming officials plug into the Bitcoin narrative. Suarez started these efforts advocating for friendlier Bitcoin regulation and novel developments at the city level to enable the flourishing of Bitcoin-related innovation. Suarez first proposed Miami integrate, uh, or <clears throat> sorry, Suarez first proposed Miami to integrate Bitcoin into its operations earlier in the year. The resolution sought to allow residents to pay city fees and property taxes in Bitcoin and city employees to get paid in Bitcoin. The proposal also intended to allow Miami to hold BTC. The mayor later received support from Miami-Dade County with the establishment of a cryptocurrency task force that would assess the feasibility of similar developments at a county level. DeSantis is the latest Florida official to show interest in enabling Bitcoin payments. The state-level support could improve Miami's odds in passing the necessary legislation as most proposals have since stalled. In October, Suarez said his plan to pay city employees in Bitcoin was advancing. Still, the lack of developments in that direction led the mayor to seek an alternative and use Lightning Payments, Lightning payments app Strike to get a paycheck in BTC. While improvements and developments in the city, county, and state legislations have not materialized for the most part, the publicity of promise and excitement towards Bitcoin has driven businesses, enthusiasts, and conferences to Florida. And that is the first step as lawmakers still struggle to wrap their heads around the peer-to-peer -peer monetary network. Okay, so now we've got a governor backing this shit at the state level on record. Okay, a little late. I kind of figured that he was right there along with Greg Abbott here in Texas, but... Whatever, as long as we move forward, I don't care. Now, oh God, should I do this one? I don't know, I gotta flip a coin, hold on. All right, tails it is. Kira Wright from Coin Telegraph. Congressperson jokes about a mongoose coin. Now it exists. 
<laughs> what the hell did you expect? Never, never let a, a, a proper meme go to waste. Representative Brad Sherman joked about how ridiculous a mongoose coin would be on Wednesday, and by Friday, it's a reality. During Wednesday's hearing on, the crypt, on crypto at the House Financial Services Committee, Sherman spun a tale of an old woman who swallows bigger and bigger animals to eat the animals previously swallowed. He likened this fable to cryptocurrencies dethroning one another, explaining that Bitcoin could be unseated by Ether, which in turn could be displaced by Dogecoin, and then Hamstercoin, and then Cobracoin. Quote, what could Mongoose coin do to crypto coin, he asked. The African am animal is, of course, known for eating other animals, including cobra snakes. It's a metaphor. Get it? Sense of humor fairly intact. The crypto community responded by minting a batch of tokens relating to the speech overnight on Avalanche, Polygon, and Binance Smart Chain. The first coin that sprung into existence was Mongoose coin, <laughs> which has the ticker Mongoose, which has a total market capitalization of Jesus Christ, 18.74 million with just under 3,000 holders, quote, named by Congress, made by the mongress, states the coin's Twitter bio. In a medium post outlining the coin's roadmap, a spokesperson for Mongoose Coin wrote that Mong is a movement that captures the community's fight against regulators for freedom and for a common goal. Other iterations of Mongoose Coin have also appeared, such as Goose, which has grown 48,287% over the past 24 hours, and Mong, which has grown 4,301%. Other Mongoose-related spinoffs, such as Son of Mongoose, Baby Mongoose, have also been created. Later on in the hearing, Sherman asked, will Mongoose coin always have a value? Quote, I don't know. I just made it up. It's a joke. Although I said that about a hamster coin, and then I found out there really was a hamster coin, it's not fair to compare fiat currency's current system to what cryptocurrencies aspire to be. End quote. Hamster, also known as HAM, is indeed a real token. On Thursday, HAM had a trading volume of $113,000. A few hours into the hearing, by 1.30 a.m. UTC, the trading volume had surged by 642% to $822,000. It is down 18.6% over the past 24 hours and down 67.8% from its all-time high, according to CoinGecko. During a Thursday interview, Sherman told Bloomberg that the cryptocurrency industry's self-mocking humor is a threat to itself and that memes only seem to inspire greed. Quote, how can you pay anything for a hamster coin? If it's a joke made by a bald congressman from Louisiana at a hearing is going to rip your hamster coin with his mongoose teeth. End quote. I don't know really what Brad Sherman's trying to say there, but he doesn't get it. He doesn't get any of it. There, all nuance is lost upon this man. And this is what happens when you end up in Congress, I think, for as long as Brad Sherman's been there or any of these guys, is you lose all touch with your constituency. And, and one of those main lines of communication between the rep and the constituency is a sense of humor. And to not understand the power of a meme is, is frightfully distressing, honestly, because memes are one of the quickest ways to communicate large amounts of information over long distances with almost zero energy used. To, to just put that off as, as something that doesn't matter is just shows the ignorance of this particular person. Because if you did not know, memes, the word meme, M-E-M-E, -E, was coined by Richard Dawkins. All right. He's a genetic evolutionary biologist. He was, he's one of the writers that has made the most impact on biology. I don't particularly like his views on God because he's an atheist and thinks everybody that believes in God is, is stupid. But that aside, the guy's actually pretty fucking smart. And he was the one that coined the term meme because it rhymes with gene. And genes transfer lots of information at almost no effort. Okay? He is the one that said ideas are like that too, and that you can communicate vast amounts of information very, very quickly over long distances with minimal amounts of energy. And he wrote that shit in the 80s, like the late 80s. That's how long 
the term meme has been around if you didn't know. So for Brad Sherman to say these kinds of things should shock the shit out of you, especially if you're one of the people that voted this asshole in. He doesn't get it. He's never going to get it. All he's going to do is try to fight it. He's picked his hill to die upon. He will die upon the Bitcoin hill. Now, this guy is also going to die on the Bitcoin hill. Uh, Sushi Swap CTO resigns citing chaos within and without the project. Andrew Oskamov has it for decrypt. Joseph DeLong, the chief technical officer of the popular Ethereum-based decentralized exchange SushiSwap, has quit his role effective immediately. (laughs) It didn't even take two weeks. DeLong took to Twitter to announce his departure from the project on Wednesday, saying he's taking a month-long vacation with the family before launching a new scam, or uh, I mean project, Um, I wish Sushi the best and am saddened that Sushi is so imperiled within and without, wrote DeLong. SushiSwap is the third largest DEX in terms of trading volumes. DeLong's move follows the resignation of OX Maki, the anonymous co-founder of SushiSwap, as the project's leader back in September. Despite Ox Mackey making himself or, or himself indicating at the time that his resignation was voluntary, a leaked screenshot from a Sushi Swap's closed telegram group suggested that DeLong initiated a poll asking the team whether they should ask Ox Mackey to leave. A now deleted post on the Sushi Swap forum also alleged that Ox Mackey was forced out, blaming DeLong and several other team members for his departure. DeLong's resignation is just the latest in the CTO's most recent infighting with the sushi community. In a Twitter thread last Sunday, the former CTO addressed that he described an absurd defamation that he, oh, sorry, uh, claiming that there has been a lot of drama within sushi and overt manipulation coming from outside of the project and threatened to quit if the community did not support the current current core team. According to DeLong, despite receiving $300,000 for his work at Sushi, he is not very well compensated for the job he was doing since he took a pay cut leaving Dapper Labs to work with Sushi. Quote, I will peacefully transfer all the accounts and go and build something else equally as successful as you can find someone else to bully, he added. The same day, DeLong also submitted a proposal to pay all core members except himself 200,000 sushi, around $1.2 million in current prices, but this did not pass the vote. Meanwhile, a different proposal, which, if approved, would see sushi swap being governed by a decentralized autonomous organization, that is still on the table. However, DeLong voiced doubts that the project in its current state will be able to find the right way out. Quote, the chaos that is occurring now is unlikely to result in a resolution that will leave the DAO as much more of a shadow than it once was without a radical structural transformation, wrote DeLong. So if that if you're still dealing with sushi swap, I don't know why. I mean, this is bad. This is bad. If you're if you're need if you are balls deep in, in sushi, you'd need to punch out as fast as you can because this looks like it is deteriorating at a very accelerated pace. And I wouldn't want to be anywhere around it when it goes under. Now, see, is there anything else? No, there is not. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. All right, I'm just going to go ahead and cut it short here. Um, Thank you for listening to today's show. I hope you found the information useful. If you did, remember, you can always support me on Podcasting 2.0. This is my favorite and will be my favorite way of people supporting this show now and going on into the future. It's radically fun to watch Satoshi stream in as I now am able to actually say, wow, somebody's actually listening to this show right now. Because if they weren't, they wouldn't be streaming me Satoshis to my Lightning node via the Podcasting 2.0 RSS feed with its value block included. And from what I've gathered with what Adam Curry and Dvorak were talking about yesterday, this is going to get really fun. Because you can apply this shit anywhere. Streaming songs, videos, radio stations, you name it, man. You name it. If you can slap an RSS feed valuable or a value block into a feed, whether it's RSS or not, uh, this is going to get really impressive. And there is no amount of suit wearing, tie wearing, 
bullshit shilling that the drummer from Metallica can do in front of any, any congressional member that's going to fix his little red wagon. In fact, it's going to actually empower Lars Ulrich and people like him that were bitching about the P2P music services like Napster back in the day. It's going to empower him much more than he ever thought possible. And if he had embraced Napster back in the day, man, Lars would actually be probably be a Bitcoin Lightning Network hero at this point, but he didn't because he has a fiat mindset. Do not allow yourself to plunge back into a fiat mindset and view with skepticism all the Bitcoiners that you see out there that talk a good game. Take a deep, good, long, hard look at the way they're actually doing their business and ask yourself, is this a fiat mindset? If it is, then they're not really a not really doing Bitcoin any favors. That's all I'm going to say about it. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.